Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Mother's Day 2018, and we salute the mothers in our lives, whether they're here or whether they're gone. We miss you. We love you. We're thinking of you. Particularly this morning, during the next two hours, we're going to salute mothers of courage, women who have faced adversity in their role as motherhood and try to come out the other end. So when we come back in just a bit, motherhood, courage, and a whole lot more coming up here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More mothers and a whole lot more. The WIP time, 6.01. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's WIP-FM. And my guest this morning, Kate Genovese. You may remember her. She was with us last December, and I've invited her back again because she she is, I think, a sterling example of a mother of courage. Good morning, Kate Genovese. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Kate, you get pregnant, you have a baby, you're full of hopes and dreams, and suddenly one day it comes crashing down, doesn't it? Yeah. What happened for your son, Gino? Well, um, he was a very good hockey player. And um, he went to a private high school, private college. And during that time, he had some injuries, six surgeries. And in that time, he had to take some pain medication, some Percocets. And um, basically, he got addicted while he was in high school. We just didn't know how severe it was until he... Um, got out of college and was on his own, and he wasn't playing hockey anymore, and he had no way of getting his drugs except on the street. And that's how we found out his roommate from college called us up and told us how severe his addiction was. So that's that's basically what killed him. He went for four years on and off. Um, using drugs, he went from the Percocet, which became too expensive for him, and um, started getting heroin and fentanyl. Mm. And that and that's, that's what killed him, was the fentanyl, really. He, he died when he was 30, and it will be two years in a couple of weeks. He died over Memorial Weekend, and accidental. And he had been so he had been straight for a couple of months, and he was ready to start another job. And we're just guessing he thought he'd get one more high, and before he started a new job, and it killed him. And certainly, fentanyl, if no other drug, is an incredibly killer drug, isn't it? Oh, it's horrible! It is. It's horrible. It'll kill you in seconds. I mean, they give it in the um, um, operating room. And all it takes is, um, you know, just a little bit, and then you're only high for a second or two, or I mean, a minute or two, and you need more. And it, it's a fast acting. Like you keep needing more. And now, from what I hear, um, the people on the street using drugs, the substance abusers, are getting propofol, which is even stronger and faster. And that's killing them. That is, that's the new drug now. And I guess they mix it with heroin and fentanyl as well. 
But it's increasing in Massachusetts. I don't know about where you are, but um, it's, I was just reading, it's increasing uh, twofold in the last couple of months, which is terrible. And certainly, so, propo- certainly propofol is the drug that killed Michael Jackson. Yeah, right. All Michael right. Jackson, right, that killed him, yeah. Kate, what were the early signs? Did you have any inkling? Any signs? Yes. Um, yeah, I, we had signs. We didn't have them right away. Um, that's why they call it a family disease, because we were in denial about it, my husband and I. We we just didn't think it was that bad. We had no idea it was that bad, especially when he was away, because he in high school he lived in a boarding school. And um, then in college he lived away. So when we'd see him, it was mostly um, for games because he has to play football. And so we saw him mostly for games. And in high school, he'd come home over the weekends occasionally, and he always made himself look good. I thought it was more marijuana that he was getting high on. And I know he was using marijuana, but um, I didn't think it was anything stronger until um, his his, um, roommate called us. I I really didn't. That's how much in denial I was. He was in denial. I was uh, just, you know, I didn't want to face it. But now we we had to face it. We had to try to help him out because it is a disease, as most people know now. A lot of people still don't believe it, but it is a disease. It does something to the frontal lobe of the brain, and it makes you just crave the drug. Just crave it. You can't live without it until you get treatment and you get slowly taken off of it. And um, he never got to that point. He just always thought he could go to meetings, meaning uh, Narcotic Anonymous meetings or um, AA meetings. But uh, he seemed to seek out the drug addicts in those rooms because sometimes they they still go to the meetings but are using. And he would, you know, find those guys or girls that are still using and and uh, seek out the drugs there. So he never really gave it a good try. You know, he'd tell us he did, but had always slip. And it was hard to see because he went from this tremendous athlete and wonderful kid, I mean, and still was even till the end. He was funny. He was he was good to people. He was kind. And in a flash, he could, you know, turn around, Jekyll and Hyde, when drugs put in him. And he he was good. He was basically fun to be around, though, too. And, um, you know, he got awards in school, and, and people just loved him. You know, he was the captain of his teams, and he would um, find fun things to do all the time for the kids. In college, especially, you know, every Sunday they had off, and it's say, "It's all right, guys, get out of bed. It's Sunday. It's fun day. Now I got to think of what to do and it, uh, find something fun to do." And you know, he's just 
always full of laughs. But it's his laughter killed him, really, because he was holding in a whole lot of sadness that we didn't know about. And um, one of those being being sexually abused when he was younger, we didn't know it. And uh, he, we didn't know it until middle school. And uh, then early in high school, we got him treatment. And, and uh, it seemed to help. We, we thought that, you know, once he got bad, it was a lot better, but he was just hiding it. You see, I'm so like, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kate. Uh, it's, no, so it's just part of that, too. Mm-hmm. He sounds like he was every mother's dream in many respects. Right, right. He just, um, you know, he he couldn't seem to talk about it too much. You know, it was embarrassing for him. Well, so many victims of sexual abuse end up blaming themselves. I must have done something when you did nothing. Oh, I know. You blame yourself. Yeah, he went through that. But he, you know, he he had nothing to do with that. He was a little kid. And... um was my brother actually, and he, my brother ended up going to jail for uh, abusing other people. So he got some punishment, he got some satisfaction that my brother was getting treatment, but it wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. So it's really sad, really sad. As I woke up this morning, thinking about, you know, two years ago at this time, he was alive. And you know, we were getting ready to, um, you know, plan our day and, you know, go to have a brunch for Mother's Day. And, you know, it was it was a hap- one of the happier days. And at least he died with us having a good relationship and also believing in God, which was important to me. And um, I think of the good things that had occurred during our his life, our life together, because he was the youngest, and the other two kids were, uh, my son was six years old and my daughter eight years older, so he was home with me, um, you know, for a good part of his um, early, early life, and um, we just did all sorts of fun things together, and and then when he started playing hockey, I mean, we traveled all over the place, and um, he went to Europe even, and um, it just had a lot of fun. So I try to I try to focus on that when I get down. I try to focus on the good times and and the laughter and the smile, and you know a lot of a lot of happy days in our lives, not the negative. You know. That's good to know. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, you never, I don't think you'll ever get over a child dying. I don't think there's anything worse, except my sister said to me, there's one thing worse, and that is if somebody steals your child, you know, and you never see, you know they're alive, but you don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. So I think of that, too, like, yeah, it's true. You don't know where that person is, and you can seek, and you're looking around, and, you know, every street corner you turn and look, see if that's them. That must be terrible. Absolutely. But, um, 
you know, Gino's in a good place now, I'm sure. And, um, yeah. So, um, I'm a lot different since the last time I talked to you. I, I'm a little more, things seem a little softer. I'm not as, um, bitter and angry and upset at God and at the world for this happening to our family. Accepting. As Job said, why me? And God answered back, why not you? Exactly. I know it. All right. Kate, you mentioned something. You mentioned he went to AA meetings as well. Did he also have a problem with alcohol? No, he didn't. But, um, uh, he went there because he liked those meetings better. Um, he related more to people in AA. There's a different, um, it's kind of a different culture. I went, I went with him and um, a couple of times to both meetings, and I saw the difference. Um, now, this is just my take on it. I just felt like the NA, NA Narcotics Anonymous, they were a little tougher. You know, it was street tough, and every other word was F this and F that. And, and uh, the AA people seemed a little more accepting of their disease and kinder and um, wanting to get better. You know, I could see, and then in NA meetings, afterwards you'd see them outside just hanging there waiting to sell drugs. Some of them were still selling drugs, mm. you know. Some of the drug addicts were there, or not even drug addicts. They might have just been dealers waiting for these guys and girls to come out that had to be there. Some of them had to go to prove, because they're on probation, they had to prove that they were going to meetings and have somebody sign something saying they were there. So that's why they'd go a lot of times. And, and you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Kate Genovese. Kate's got a new book. Well, not such a new book anymore, but an important book as well about her son, Gino Genovese, his death due to addiction, and a whole lot more. My name's Peter Solomon. All right, Kate, um, you didn't have any initial inklings. It was a slow dawning process if I understand you correctly? Um, for me, it is. For me, it was, yeah. When I, when it first happened, you know, I was in shock, as we all were. And um, as time went on, I just a couple of weeks, I um, started to go to um, support groups. And that's what, initially got me to write Hat Tricks from Heaven, the name of my book, because um, they, they suggested that you um, journal. Journaling does help a lot. You know, you're writing, getting it out, out in the air, so to speak. And I said, geez, you know, I'm not just journaling. I'm writing a book. And I decided that's what I'd do is I would write. So Everything did come out kind of slowly, and I, you know, it was back and forth. You know, I didn't go straight through his life like 
when he was one years old, and you know, I went back and forth like when he was born. Or actually, I started with my husband and I lives, and and slowly I went into Gino's life, and then I went to when he died, and then back to when he was in fifth grade. That's how my book uh, came out. All sorts of uh, different different eras at different times in the book. I didn't want to go straight through. I like books like um, doing reading books like that or TV shows like that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's a little more interesting to me. So that's how it came out. Did you ever ask Gino why? Why the drugs? Why are you doing this? Well, yeah, yeah. I, plenty of times I said, "Why well, are you doing this to yourself? You have a great future." I mean, he got right out of college and he landed this really good job. I mean, when, a year after he started the job, he was making a hundred thousand a year with a car, with commission, beautiful, beautiful girlfriend that he went with all through college. Why would anybody? do this to themselves. And he just didn't have an answer. He didn't have an answer. It just felt good. <clears throat> he never said he was hiding anything. But in the end, he obviously told us, you know, he was hiding things, but he got so into it, he he, he couldn't seem to stop. It seemed to be who he was. And he had... Um, beautiful girlfriend Heather and she was beautiful inside and out and and to give her up was amazing to me that he would actually take drugs over her she just loved him so much and she tried so hard with him and she just couldn't take it anymore it's very hard living with a drug addict I don't know if you know that absolutely <laughs> yes I do yeah absolutely you can relate sure and um, between her and a couple of friends and um, a couple of my friends and my husband and I I mean we, we we tried very hard maybe too hard but I did you know he that wasn't his first overdose either he had overdosed probably three other times mm that we had found out about. And um, he would go right back out in the street and do it over. He told me one time he just went right back out, got taken to the hospital, left the hospital, and he had some drugs in the car. So he, I don't know how he got to his car, but he got there because it was miles away. And he um, used all over again. After he just overdosed. I mean, that is just how strong it is, how powerful it is, Absolutely. how evil it is. Well, obviously, when he had the job, he had the money to do the drugs. How about when he was in school? No, this was after he had graduated. Right. So he had, um, he had prescription drugs when he was in high school and college and playing hockey. And the injuries... I always was able to get the drugs from some doctor. But once he had no excuse, you know, he couldn't, 
he couldn't afford to stay on Percocet because they're they're a lot more money than heroin. So um, that that's when he switched over, and we didn't find that out ourselves until maybe a year before he died. It was, you know, finding needles in his room. Were things disappearing uh, from home? Uh, no, he just, he disappeared as a credit card. I had my own business with my writing. Um, I had my own credit card. But I forgot I even had. And um, they were in my room, in my writing room, as I call it. And he searched through absolutely everything and found two of them that were, you could get up to, I think, $25,000 on him. And he used both of those. So he spent $50,000 mm. on a, my credit card. Could have bought a so, Cadillac for that. God, I know it. A lot of other nice things. Absolutely. Now, Kate, you were a nurse for 30 years. No clue from, yeah. your, no clue from your nurse's training? Uh, any clues? Yes, from your nurse's training. Oh. Well, you know, you're, you're about the hundredth person who's asked me that, and it's making me feel extremely like, why, why didn't I notice this? I, t- I didn't take care of um, substance abuse people directly. I worked in a large hospital on a surgical floor. So... I would see people getting medication, but it was needed for their surgery. But oftentimes I would have some um, drug addict people that had pancreatic problems and liver problems and, uh, you know, uh, heart problems because of cocaine and, and, you know, things like that. And, yeah, I mean, I did... I did think of that, but it was a little bit too late when I thought of it. Um, now, knowing what I know now, as this book is trying to, I'm trying to help people, I think you should start checking, no matter who your child is, start checking them around 11 years old because that's when the drugs are starting. You know, and then, and my son told me, Chris told me that, Gino told me that it was the gateway. He really thought that marijuana was his gateway drug. And then it just went on to other things. Kate, it and, was... Go ahead. And, and I was just going to say, and then that's how, you know, it started in a way, but his injuries hadn't started. He had just started to smoke pot to some of his friends were. And at that time, he was just doing that recreationally and didn't seem addicted. But um, I just didn't, I didn't think it was as bad as it was. That's all I can say. I just didn't want it to be my son. And I would just shove it in the back of my head. Or I would say, God wouldn't do this to me twice because I also had a son that had an alcohol problem. And... We had a horrible time with him. Horrible. I mean, he was in treatment center, the treatment center. And then 
all of a sudden, with a, just a snap of his finger, he decided to get better. And he went to AA meetings, and he's been sober for 20 years. He started young, and he, he's been sober for 20 years. But what we went through with him was just terrible. So I really didn't think that this would happen to me twice. Why? I don't know. I just didn't. Because it was just too much the first time. And with Gino, it was double... Well, how, how do I say it? It was worse. It was double worse. It was uh, because it was drugs. And my son Dan was alcohol. And I, there is a big difference. I think there's a big difference. One is illegal, one isn't. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And, and personalities are different. Mm-hmm. Personalities are different. And the craving is different. This is my experience. Somebody else might have a different experience, but I saw the two differences between Gino and Dan. And, um, you know, although Dan was, you know, an alcoholic and and the experience was horrible, at least it wasn't deathly. He wasn't, he didn't drink to the point where he was going to die. But... You know, Gina would, and he did. You know, why didn't I see that? If we saw it sooner, could we have done something about it? Would he be alive today? I don't know. I mean, that's where maybe destiny comes in. Maybe we're, you know, I went to a psychic, and she said, there's a there's a chart. When you die, there's a, a chart that God goes over with you, and, and, and you know from birth and you're going to die. Now, I don't know how true that is, but it makes a little bit of sense why things happen. And certainly, Kate, it wasn't my wish to make you feel bad. I think rather, though, to point out, no matter what you're training, it's easy to think, not my child. And yeah. I think that's the issue. Not my child. It couldn't be my child. And it couldn't be exactly. anybody's child. That's That's part of the story, I think. And it is, in fact. Yeah, and, and, you know, people blame parents. I know people blamed us. Um, you know, they sh- when he was younger, they should have kept a better eye on him. And he was bad influence and, you know, a variety of different things came out of people's mouths. The person next door to me said they had just moved in and... Um, when he died, when Gino died, they said, you know, because we were very honest about it when he died because we felt that was necessary for the world to know that we weren't hiding it, that this is a disease. And when we told her, she said, I always knew there was something wrong with that kid. <laughs> how nice of her. How nice of her yeah. to know it and how nice of her to tell you. Um, yeah. And you're listening. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest, Kate Genovese, her author of the new, she's the author of the book, Hat Tricks from Heaven. It's a story about her son, Christopher John, also known as Gino Genovese, and how he died at age 30 from an opioid, an opioid addiction. My name's Peter Solomon. How about when he was in treatment? Did treatment ever reach out to you? Oh, yeah. We, we, 
tried to get him into treatment when he was um, back home with us when he was 26. That's when um, it all kind of fell down on him. Um, we said, you got to get into treatment. And he said, no, 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 I can do this myself. And so we said, okay, let's, let's, let's see if you can do it yourself. People weren't dying left and right at that time either. Um, that didn't come for a couple of more years. So we let him let him do it that way. If he was going to live in a house, he had to go to meetings. And so he did go to meetings, but then it did get worse, and we said, you've got to go into treatment. You, you have insurance. At this time, he still had a job. He said, you, you have a job with insurance. You, you have to. You're going to kill yourself. And I said that not really meaning it, you're going to kill yourself. But of course I knew there's a possibility. But every time we said that, he would take off. He would leave. He would go and stay with friends. And then he'd come home and be good for a couple of months and would say, gee, this is over. And then it would start all over again. And the only time we sought treatment was towards the year before he died. And he was willing to go, but we couldn't find a bed. Mm. It was winter time. We could not find a bed. And um, all the hospitals, all the rehabs were full. And at that time, he was on mass health. So they didn't want to take people that didn't have any insurance. They wanted the money. So he couldn't even get into a bed, would call every day. There was one place that if you called every day, there'd be a chance that there'd be a discharge. And so he was on that list. And then he um, kind of just the summer came in, and he just just got sober on his own and, and worked again. And, you know, his life was back and forth, good and bad. He'd work and stay sober, work and stay sober. That was him. And then the about well, six months before he died, he um, he um, we're getting it. He um, had a job, but he also wa- uh, lost it because he uh, got caught with drugs in his car, and this time the um, judge put him in jail. So he had gone before the judge so many times for different things, and they just made him pay a fine. I wished they had, I wish that's one thing I'd see happen, that they would just take these substance abusers and say, these are sick kids or men or women. Let's put them in a facility where they can get some help, and then we'll deal with their crime when they're clean and sober, then we'll deal with their crime. Because they do need to be punished, you know. We'll agree that, you know, if you're stealing something, if you're stealing a car, if you're stealing money, I mean, you can't let that go. Something's going to happen. But if if it's because of drugs, they're not in their right mind. So I believe they need more rehab. They need more sober houses. And that's what I'm hoping to do with some of the proceeds of this book. Because 
that time, you know, six months before he died, once again we went through the whole routine trying to um, get him into somewhere. And then he got arrested and the judge did it for us. But we actually knew he couldn't stay in prison because he was not the prison type. He was as tough as he looked sometimes. He was not. He was he was scared to death. And he was, you know, with all men. And, and they put him in a cell with a guy that had been a molester. And we said, we got to get this kid out of here. I mean, this is horrible. So we got a good lawyer and... Um, and um, we found a place in Florida. My sister's a social worker, and um, we could not find one place in Massachusetts in February. That's February, not one place. So we, we looked to New Hampshire. We, we covered all of New England, and there was nothing. So we, we knew, she knew, my sister Carrie knew of this place in Florida and um, had a high success rate. So we made our um, lawyer told us to make arrangements. He knew the um, DA at that courthouse, and he said, oh, I can get him down there in a heartbeat. Don't just even buy his plane ticket. That's how sure he was. So the day we were in court with him, and we had every thought, we had everything arranged, the judge looked at the information on the paperwork we gave him, and he rolled it up in a ball and threw it at the at the um, lawyer. And he said, this kid isn't leaving Massachusetts. He wants to go to Florida. Like, he didn't understand that we had been trying to find him places for months. And so, you know, I think if we had got, got him there, maybe that would have changed things. Maybe he would have gotten better. Maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe he would have gotten to Florida and failed once again. I don't know, but he didn't have, he didn't have a chance. What happened was they put him on house arrest, which was even worse than anything. He had to wear a, a GP thing around your ankle, mm-hmm. GPS. And, you know, he was a schmoozer, and he had to go to a sheriff's office every day for classes. And he would because he was a very smart kid, and he would talk them into things, like, oh, I, I know I could um, get a job if, if I could stay out till 10 at night. So that happened. You know, they would give in to him left and right. And he wasn't with his type of people. Like, the, I don't mean to be sound uh, coarse or mean or... or the, uh, people on the street are bad people, but, I mean, he did go to a really expensive private high school. He learned some skills there that were good, and he was basically a good kid, and he was a different kind of illness with him, I think. And so when he got to this, um, going to the sheriff's every day, he was hanging around with 40-year-old guys that had been in the system for years. You know, they had been they only knew drugs. Drugs was their life. And so he got he got worse because of the place he was in. He would get drugs for, you know, every day if he wanted to. And that's when we found out about fentanyl. And that's when I 
got very frightened. That's when I knew. Because I went to Al-Anon, which is um, a program for um, family members or friends who have a, um, an addiction. And I heard it in Al-Anon that, you know, that this fentanyl was on the street and, you know, they got scared. And, and I said, he said, you know, this is serious. He can die. We have to, you know, do something. He's getting high even while he's, while he was going to the sheriff's every day, he was getting high on something. And we didn't know how or where he's getting it. And then I found out by investigating things. And But the thing is, they don't believe you. And I, I have a, they're thinking, I have a 30-year-old son and I'm a 60-year-old woman trying to run his life. That's what it looked like. I was enabling him myself. Well, so they weren't taking me seriously. Someone needed to run his life because he obviously couldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. But, you know, he he just was at the point where he, I think, I think he was really trying to get better because he had been sober, as I said, for two months, and he got a good job again, and he was all ready to get off probation and go back out in the real world and straighten out. And he, you know, I could hear him on the phone with his friends, like, I'm really going to do it this time. I got a job, I'm starting Tuesday. And, you know, I really thought he meant it. But as my brother-in-law says, who's an ex-addict, anything that comes out of the mouth of an addict is a lie. (laughs) And I believe it now. And my whole world is a different world now. I mean, my eyes are wide open. If I saw some parent at a point where I'm at, I mean, I would talk to them and say, right away, your kid has a problem. Sorry for butting in, but look at them. I mean, I'd speak up. I didn't then, you know. I didn't speak up to myself. And my husband and I weren't on the same page ever. That caused issues and problems because we had a good marriage until he came back to live with us, and it was going down the drain real fast. That's another reason they call it a family disease because, you know, families fight. My daughter was mad at us. She didn't think we were handling it correctly. Anything I did, I I wasn't doing correctly. But you did the best you can, Kate Genovese. I did the best I could. I tried. I mean, I love, I love, I loved him. I didn't, I wanted to, I wanted to see him become a 40 year old success story, a 50 year old success story. That's not just monetarily. I mean, a good person. Maybe a couple of grandchildren. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Kate, what did you think when you got that phone call about the final overdose? When he died? Yes. Well, I was in New Hampshire, and um, um, I went away with my brothers and sisters at our place in New Hampshire, and um, the phone rang at 2.30 in the morning, and I just knew it was bad news. Something was bad. It was either my husband or 
had a heart attack. I don't know what I was doing in my, going through my head or it was Christopher. So I just answered the phone and it was my daughter and she she just said, Mom, um, Gino, dead. And I said, no, he's not. Put Dad on the phone. And so my husband got on the phone and he told me a little bit of what happened, but he was dead. He overdosed. So he said, do not come home now. It's 2.30 in the morning. You cannot drive from New Hampshire home. It was a couple hours ride. So my brother and sister and my sister-in-law was with me, and we just sat and talked. And um, then Carrie and I went up to our room and just were talking, and she had a Valium, and she gave me a Valium to help try to sleep a, lot, a little bit. And we were brought up Catholic, and um, we were always... I had to say the rosary at certain times of the the year. Are you familiar with the rosary? Yes. I'll say a Catholic or whatever. So we said the rosary together. We sat there and said the rosary until we fell asleep. And that was my night. So we got up at 6.30 and came back home. And so when I got in the car, I called all my friends I knew that would be awake at 7 in the morning and told them. So when I got home, I had a house full of people, which I was grateful for because I couldn't be alone. I couldn't be alone. And I just wanted to see them, and they wouldn't let me see them. They wouldn't let me see them. They had to. To this day, I still don't know why they wouldn't let me see them. Yeah, that's a good question. I wish I had known. I wanted to, just to see myself, but I had to wait till the day that we had to wait and look at them. Kate, do you think the grief that you felt is different than the grief than your husband felt? Um, I think we, I mean, grief is grief. Uh, he had a great relationship with his son. I mean, he was the guy that took him to hockey at 5 in the morning and traveled to Europe with him for hockey tournaments. And, you know, they had a fantastic relationship. Chris and I did too, but in a different way. So I think our grief was the same, but just showed it differently. Like, my husband only cried in front of people in the church. That's the only time I saw him cry. But he cries. He just doesn't cry publicly. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, my grief is obvious. I think that's you know? what men do. They don't cry publicly, which is unfortunate, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to cry. I think that men die sooner because they don't cry. Mm-hmm. They don't let out their feelings, and it affects their organs. Keith, <laughs> how did you get the courage to keep going? Because I would—I can't think of anything more devastating. Parents are supposed to bur- children are supposed to bury their parents. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. 
Well, I think I think what kept me going is that I have I had an awful lot of support, and I have a very strong faith in God, and I just did what people told me to do that had been through this before. A, B, C, and D. You know, you you pray, you ask for help, you get angry, you scream and yell, you get in your car and scream, God's are doing this, and, you know, you go to support groups. And, you know, my sister Irene, who I was very, very close to, and lived in Oregon, I had talked to her every day, and then she had decided to come home and move back here after he died. And then four months later, she died. Mm. I know, she had cancer. And, you know, she was very, because she lost, she lost a son, too. We've lost three nephews in our family, and all because of drugs. There's 18 nieces and nephews that I have, and three of them are dead. One of them is my son. So her son died. And so she kind of knew what I was going through, and she she was very spiritual as well. And, and we just talked every single day. She would call me and would talk. And then at the end, would pray. And I think that just helped. It just helped me. And that he's alive at some level. Gino's here. He might be sitting across the table right now invisibly. Um, I just feel he's alive at some level. And, you know, I just talked to him. Um, the book has helped me tremendously. It's it helped me heal, although it was extremely hard to write. Oh, it helped sure. Me heal. Yeah, it's helping me daily to do this, do what I'm doing right now. And then afterwards, people will um, they have to give my website, will reach out to me on my website. Matter of fact, with your show, I got... A lot of calls at first. That the first time I was on your show, I got a lot of not calls, but a lot of um, reaching out on my website and thanking me and um, that type of thing. So that's why I'm doing this. Maybe it will save somebody's life. Maybe it will open some parents' eyes. Absolutely. You know, or a brother and sister that could help more, or you know, anything like that. Just to say one one more person with this dreaded disease, it's just it's just so horrible how many people are dying because of this. Absolutely. You know, I, Go ahead. I mean, I just remember back in the 70s, this was happening a little bit. Um, I was just out of high school, but I remember it was heroin was around and was killing people. And then it went on to another drug. There's always been drugs in my life that you hear about, you know, and then cocaine. Like, what? my question is, why do we as human beings need something to ease our pain? You know, why does that happen so often? 
I'm just not asking you. I'm just throwing that out there. If we knew, Kate, we could solve the world's drug problem. Kate, how do you feel about being called brave? Because I think you're incredibly brave. That makes me feel feel really good, but, um, you know, not why I wrote the book. That's not why I say the things I say. I, I just feel that I, I truly feel that my son was meant to die partially so that I could write this book and reach out and help others. If you could turn back the clock, if you could turn back the clock, would you take back your permission to play hockey? Oh, yes. I would have. But he said the hockey, he told us afterwards, the hockey he needed, because he told him so many times, just stop playing. And he was good, and they would just put him back on the ice. Even his shoulder would pop out, and they'd still put him back on the ice. But he said he had to play because it made him stop thinking of the the abuse or anything else that was bothering him, but mainly the abuse, just the roughness, just the, you know, like people hit a punching bag. Mm-hmm. Oh, people were his punching bag. <laughs> you know, it knocked people over and hit, you know, and he was just big, a big kid, a big, strong kid and getting slapped against the boards in hockey somehow eased the tension in his brain. Yes, but I would have when I had the opportunity when he was, because um, in ninth grade he was playing, he started football, and we said not to do both because both, it's too much, the amount of hockey you're doing. And he just said, I love football too. And his father loved football because he played it. And he said, no, let him play. Everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets, everybody gets injured. And it's true. But not everybody does drugs like this when they get injured. He just happened to. And I'd like to say thank you to Kate Genovese. Her new book, Hat Tricks from Heaven. Take it, check it out. It's a cautionary tale for every parent. Something we all need to look at. She's a woman of great strength. She's a woman to be admired. Happy Mother's Day, Kate Genovese. Well, thank you so much. Could I just mention my website, please? Please, please. Um, it's just my name. It's Kate uh, Genovese, G-E-N-O-V-E-S-E, books.com, kategenoveseBooks.com. Thank you. Thank Kate. you so much, Peter. My pleasure, Kate. And thank okay. you for telling your story. And you're, you're been, welcome. You're welcome. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Tideman Solomon, my associate producer and dear wife. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. We celebrate Mother here on 94 WIP and all year long, not just today. Mother's Day year, not Mother's Day day here on 94 WIP. You're remarkable people. We talked about that a little bit with Kate, and we'll be talking about it with my next guest as well on WIP Sunday. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.